morning. We had to select songs we uh, chose for our Christmas morning. We couldn't have the choir redo the program that they did last weekend, and it was excellent. If you missed it, sorry. But uh, we, we decided that we would ask for Lean to sing, and I thought, ooh, right before I preach, it's going to be hard to follow for Lean. Ferline is a great singer. We appreciate that you use your gift to glorify God and, and to edify his people. Well, Merry Christmas. Everybody looks happy, like you've eaten some more sugar than usual. Good for you, I have. Take an extra shot of insulin and enjoy some cookies. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. 8 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Did the media team get my picture? All right, I'll give you a heads up when when I want you to put it up. It's coming, so be ready. This past week, um, I spent one day just looking for, my, my day off, looking for uh, materials, gathering materials, because uh, I'm making a Christmas present for Stephanie this year. Last year she got jewelry. This year she's getting a block of wood. S- since since last year we've had a baby and had to redo a roof, so that's how things work. And I, I went around to a bunch of different places, and I got down to the the final two pieces that I was looking for, and two pieces that I needed. And I realized that if I was going to find these pieces, I was going to have to go to a specialty store, like a hobby shop, and specifically a hobby shop that had trains or boats. So I did as any good millennial would do. I got on the internet and Googled it. And I put in train store or boat store, hobby shop, and a train store came up called, I think it was called Ready to Roll or something like that. And I looked around and I was trying to find out, got great reviews. I was trying to find out its location. I expected Hialeah because as you know, everything is in Hialeah. Their city slogan should be, if we don't got it, you don't need it. But to my surprise, the train store was in North Miami. Who knew that North Miami had a train store? I didn't know North Miami had a train store. I grew up in North Miami. And so I was looking around and I looked at the address and the address, lo and behold, was only half a mile away from the church. I couldn't believe it. So I quickly hit the street image because I had to see just where this train store was. I thought this has got to be wrong. And the picture, if you would put up the picture, shows this warehouse. How many of you have seen that warehouse before? It's off right down the street off of 10th Avenue and 143rd Street. I must have passed by that warehouse in my lifetime over a thousand times. My mother took me to school every morning this back way and I always saw that uh, that old building. It's rusty, it's dilapidated, it's closed down. They have 
uh, barbed wire fences over eight-foot fences. There's nothing welcoming about it at all. And when I saw it, I thought Google was for sure out of its mind that there was a train store there. I, I would have believed it had they said that Pennywise the dancing clown from the movie It was there, but not a train store. So I looked a little further and I found, I saw the inside of the store, it was beautiful, and I said, yeah, it's, it's not right, but I'll go down there and check anyway. And to my surprise, if you can believe it, there was a train store in that very building. One of the most beautiful hobby shops I've ever seen, to tell you the truth. It had several rooms in it, and on the walls there were beautiful train engines, some as high as $1,000. I couldn't believe it. The men who had been there, uh, who were working there, had been there for over 28 years and loved their hobby. This is a well-known store, and it's in the most ugly of buildings. No one would have ever thought that. I was amazed. I came in that morning, and I came back. I told everybody, I said, do you know that there's a model train store down the street? Long story short, they didn't have what I needed, but nonetheless, <laughs> I was impressed. I thought for sure when I saw the picture that it was impossible for something so unique, something so special, something that I must admit was quite amazing that it could ever exist within something so unclean and filthy. I thought my whole life that those old warehouses were literally good for nothing. This morning, I think Luke would really love this story. This gospel writer also wrote the book of Acts. And one of the common features that Luke has in his writing is that he loves to tell the story of how God has brought about his salvation in the most unlikely of ways and to the most unlikely of people. This morning, I want to draw your attention to what the passage that we're going to read in just a moment is not saying but is certainly implying, namely that the Christmas story is the hope for all people. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at what your story, the story of your son coming to earth, means for all people, all types of people, all kinds of people, all kinds of races, both genders, the worst of us, the best of us, the poorest of us, the richest of us, all of our hope, any hope that is meaningful, came and dwelt in a manger, dwelt among us, took up a cross, and died on behalf of our sins. And in our place, Lord, it should have been us who were there on that tree, but in our place stood your son, a perfect sacrifice for us. We rejoice this morning, Lord, 
as we remember the story that began over 2,000 years ago in a manger with the most unlikely of men. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, we too being unlikely. And we just thank you and praise you this holiday season. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's look at them right now. I'm going to read through this and we're going to take it piece by piece. And one of the major things that we have to do, one of the major questions you have to answer when you're reading a narrative, a narrative is simply another word for a story, is that you have to ask this question. You have to answer this question, but you have to ask it first. And that is, what is the Holy Spirit teaching me? Or what is this story telling me about God? Because narratives are not teaching, and they don't just specifically tell us what God's action or what God's purpose is for us in a particular setting. They tell us a story, and we have to be perceptive and pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes. So I want to take this story this morning. Many of you are familiar with this story, and I want to unpack it and explain it to you. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. We've heard this story many, many times. In our manger scenes at home, we have felt-looking shepherds, all who are well-groomed and look exactly like Kenny Loggins. But the story couldn't be further from the truth. We tend to romanticize these shepherds. And in doing so, we miss a vital part to the story. One commentator warns the reader not to romanticize the shepherds watching their flocks by night. The notion of a humble group of shepherds gathered silently together in a field is almost certainly not the picture that Luke is trying to create. In the first century, shepherds were viewed as outcast, even thieves. They were ritualistically unclean according to the statutes of the Jewish law. And they were so despised that they weren't even uh, permitted to give testimony in the courts of law. They were outcast. They were not beloved by men. And it is an interesting point that these men will be the first to bear witness to the world that Christ the Savior has come for all people. They weren't permitted to be witnesses in the court of law. But these men will be, in God's economy of salvation, the first to bear witness to the world of the most important testimony that the world has ever heard. Namely, the salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. One could argue that this is the most important testimony ever to be given, and I would say it certainly is. But Luke does not tell us specifically why the shepherds are mentioned in the first part of his narrative or in his gospel. He's the only gospel writer to tell us this story of the shepherds. There are several reasons, though, why we should expect to have it. Number one, because it's what actually happened. 
The reason why Luke is telling it is because it's what actually happened. Luke, when he writes both his gospel and his second book, Acts, which are to be a one-volume, well, two-volume set of one book that he wrote, actually they, they contain the most amount of material in the entire New Testament, even more so than all of Paul's letters combined, that in these two books, Luke is giving a, an account of the historicity that he has, of the historical facts that surrounded Jesus so that the recipient of his book, Theophilus, whoever this person is, will be sure of the faith that he has. And so Luke is carefully telling us a story of shepherds. But he also doesn't tell us the story of shepherds simply because it's historical fact. He tells us a story, a story of what God is doing. Another reason why Luke probably tells us the story of the shepherds in the first part of his gospel is that it represents that salvation is for all people, meaning all types of people. The angels did not appear to heralds in a king's court, but came to lowly despised shepherds. And Luke loves to convey that. Another reason why Luke probably told us this is because it fits a common theme in his gospel and in the history of the early church, Acts. And that is namely that God cares for the poor and the oppressed. That while society may not treat certain people as meaningful or important, God certainly does. Lastly, Luke probably put this story at the beginning of his gospel because God himself is making a point that shepherds in their fields, along with a king in a manger, are just the humble circumstances that he has chosen to bring his salvation. These shepherds are ultimately highly favored by God to be the first to hear the message of the gospel. The story implies that they believed on the Savior, which is Luke's main point, namely that salvation is, everyone, is for everyone. So not only will they believe, but now they will later profess. John Calvin reminds us to not be ashamed to follow those whom the Lord in order to cast down the pride of the world, has taken from among the dung of cattle to be our instructors. These shepherds are the first evangelists. The Western canon of literature has so prepared our minds to expect greatness to come from humble beginnings, so much so that anyone who goes from rags to riches is said to be living the American dream. But this is almost certainly based on our affinity for the Christ story itself. And specifically stories like the story of the shepherds. Because they were the first to hear and rejoice at the good news. All of our literature that comes from this, sty from this style of rags to riches storytelling. Certainly owes a great deal of it to Luke. For us, the implication of that passage warns against two things. First, it warns against self-loathing and, and also, second, against prejudicial, prejudicial biases for other pe or against other people. So the first thing that this passage shows 
is that God comes for all people and you do not have the right to say who God will give his gospel to. You cannot say that you are not worthy to receive his message. But not only that, your prejudicial biases will not thwart God's plan to bring his gospel message to all people. In the first case, the person who is self-loathing, well, this may not always be obvious, carries around in their heart an attitude of hatred for themselves and they characterize their life by feelings of unworthiness. In the second case, prejudicial biases assume unworthiness based typically on matters of race, gender, class, family, jobs, etc. But this gospel is good news for everyone, not just those people we like. Look at verses 9 through 14. It says, and and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Despite what some televangelists might believe and teach, angels don't suddenly appear to everyone. This is an unlikely occurrence. It's important that we understand that and that we don't minimize these big events in Scripture by claiming that every time a water stain comes on a wall that it must be an angelic representation with a message from God. This is a special occurrence. It is an unlikely occurrence. Shepherds had gone out into those fields night after night after night, have watched their flocks day after day after day, and never before had angels suddenly appeared to them. This is an unlikely moment. And it points to the importance of the anxiety or of the feelings of that moment and of that time period in the history of the world that something special is going on. This passage, though, does not have its application point, go and wait for your angel appearance. This is a one-time story to a very special group of shepherds. It is a special appearance of God to an unsuspecting and seemingly undeserving group of men. Luke has already told two stories of angelic announcements, one with Zechariah in the temple and another with Mary, both of whom received messages from the angel Gabriel and are terrified by the whole ordeal. Why? Because angels don't just appear. 
It's special. That people are afraid when angels suddenly appear in the glory of God seems to be an important enough plot point for Luke to pick up on because he mentions it three times early on in his writing. And his point seems to be this, that God's holy presence strikes fear in the hearts of sinful people. God's holy presence strikes fear in the hearts of sinful people. We remember the story of Peter when Jesus called him. His response was not nonchalant when he realized that who he was speaking to was God in the flesh. His response was, get away from me, Lord, I am unclean. Every one of us ought to be saying, as we see and hear stories of the manger, get away, for I am unclean. Do not treat this moment where the baby has come as a moment for us to take back and look back at ourselves and say, this is a cool story for us to believe in and it's the story that my parents told me when I was a child. It is God's condemnation of human sin that he himself had to become man and die in our stead. This is a serious moment. The shepherds were afraid. We must not also forget that angels do not always come with good tidings of great joy. The Bible tells us that angels will one day pour out God's judgment on all the earth. The verse tells us that while the angel was speaking, a multitude of heavenly hosts suddenly appeared. And the word there, host, literally means an army of angels. I don't know about you, but if a regular army showed up at my work, I would be pretty scared. Let alone a glorious, supernatural, angelic army that had God as their commander-in-chief. You know you're in trouble then. And so the imagery here of the, the host of angels is not just a bunch of angels. It's a specific type of angel. Angels that are prepared for battle. And they show up to these shepherds in a field. And they're taken aback. And they're scared as any one of us would be. And they say, we have good tidings of great joy. We're not here to you today to bring out God's wrath. Not yet. Not at this moment. At this moment, the angels bring good tidings of great joy. What is this great or good tiding? It is specifically a declaration of victory. It is what the word in the Greek means that this is a declaration of God's victory. And this not only is God's victory, but this will produce great joy for all people. Luke, when he uses the word, has in mind the Jewish nation. He uses the phrase, all people. It almost certainly means the Jewish nation. But this pronouncement may also be a foreshadowing of his second book, where he chronicles the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the Gentile nations. 
You have to sit back, though, and ask this question. How is it that these angels, sinless and unredeemed, could ever rejoice in the news that God has sent his son to be the salvation for sinful man? How could they know? How could they, of all beings, of all persons, rejoice at this news? They are not the recipients of this news. They are not the unworthy creature. They are not the creature that is captivated and trapped by their own sin. They are simply declaring what they may only know propositionally, and that is that God has sent his salvation to man, sinful man. But we may know what this means experientially, to be unworthy of God's good tidings of great joy. These angels should not outsing us on that day when God's glory is revealed in Christ's return. We ought to outsing them. Do you remember at the praise rallies when you were a kid, when the youth pastor didn't have anything left to do? Not, not our youth pastor. But uh, when the youth pastor didn't have anything left to do, he'd get, the, he'd get one side of the room to yell a little bit louder than the other. Let's see if the boys can yell louder than the girls. And the boys would yell. And the girls would yell. If we were in that competition against angels, we ought to outsing them. This season is a season where we rejoice that God is reconciling to himself a sinful and unworthy people, i.e. you and me. We are the dilapidated building. We are the ones covered in rust. And would angels outsing us? We are the redeemed. They have never known what it is to be under the wrath of God and to be set free by His grace and mercy. We ought to be singing God's praises louder than any person. These angels cannot know what we know. But the passage also tells us that from this moment, these evangelists, these shepherds, became active participants in the message. They are, in a sense, paying it forward. Listen to what verses 15 through 19 say. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it, there may have been more than just Mary and Joseph, all who heard it, wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds do not rest in the message that has been given to them, 
but go immediately and take hold of this salvation for themselves. There is no waiting period when these angels reveal themselves to the shepherds. They do not say, not today, next week. The angels declare Christ a good news of great joy, good tidings of great joy. A Savior has been born in the town of David, in the town of Bethlehem, that will be the salvation for all people. They proclaim the gospel. And what do these shepherds do? They get up and go in the gospel. They run after their Lord. One of my concerns in some of our churches is that we treat the altar call like something other than what true discipleship is. Namely, a running after our Lord. Jesus never says, come forward. He always says, follow me. And these shepherds begin to follow him. You think about what they did for just a moment. The Bible tells us here in the story that they left, that, that they left with haste. Can you imagine the perspective of the sheep sitting there eating their, chewing their cud, and they look up and they're like, yo, Bobby, did they just leave us? Oh, that's bad. I mean, they're in trouble. These sheep are about to die. The wolves are probably sitting there like, mm-hmm, Christmas feast right here. They leave their flock. You know, I wish Christians were a little bit more serious about leaving their jobs to serve Christ. But how could you do anything else when you hear and believe and receive the gospel? You leave everything behind. Everything pales in comparison to the good news that will bring great joy to all the people. Because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. What is there left other than to be secure and know that your eternal salvation is procured by a child in a manger? But some things are just more important. Notice, though, that these men went not only to see the child, but to proclaim the good news of his birth. They are actually the first evangelist of the gospel. They are, in fact, an unlikely first evangelist of the gospel. These shepherds are the heralds of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, lowly men who probably couldn't even read or write now carry in them the greatest message of hope for mankind. And everyone, including Mary, must have wondering what they were doing as they ran into the stable on that night. And try and imagine this scene. I've had three children, and I know after your wife has a child that the first thing she wants to do is talk to strangers. No. Mary's just had a baby. She's with probably some people who are tending to her. She's with her husband. She has a child. She's recovering. And all of a sudden, a couple shepherds come running into the door. 
A modern day comparison would be like you're there with your family and a group of chain gangers come running into your room after you just delivered a baby. That's what Luke wants you to understand what's just happened here. These are Jews. Ritualistically clean. They do not touch unclean things. And here with their child who lays in an unclean manger comes unclean shepherds running into the room of the nativity. And not only that, but they proclaim a message about the child. They tell the message that the angels told them that this child will be the salvation for all people. There are some points of application that we need to take away this Christmas season. First, we must remember that the Christmas story, the Christmas tidings, the good news of the gospel is for all types of people. We get into this debate every year around this time of whether or not we're going to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, right? I'm not going to say Happy Holidays, it's Merry Christmas, and I'll let them know. If you don't like it, you can go to... That's not good tidings. That's not good tidings, right? Happy Holidays isn't good tidings, right? But neither is this stubborn attitude that says, I'm going to say Merry Christmas if you don't like it. That's not good tidings. In fact, good tidings would be, do you know that this child is your Savior? Even to the people you don't like. To the people at Starbucks who say to you, season's greetings or whatever it is that they say. Even those people that you don't love, that you, that you may not like at all, they are all eligible to receive the gospel, the good tidings of the Christmas season. The good tidings is not wrapped up into some kind of political Merry Christmas war. In other words, what I am calling you to do is tell the story. Tell it. It's as simple as I bring to you good news. Christ the Savior has been born. All who believe in his name will be saved. This Christmas season, tell the story, the good tidings of Christ's coming. Number two, See the importance of the angelic message for yourself. See the importance of the angelic message for yourself. It is essential that if we are ever going to win people to the Lord, that we have to first believe it ourselves. I will say this. While it may not be true that you don't believe the message, it may be true that your silence about the message indicates that you don't fully grasp what has happened. You don't fully grasp just how important it is that God has died 
before an unlikely people. Because if you grasp that, the only thing you could do is tell and declare that message. I want you to see in your own life the importance of the angelic message that God loves sinners. Finally, this Christmas season, I want us to rejoice at the message of the shepherds. When we started this series four weeks ago, I said that one of my main goals was not to, not, not to get you to throw away your Christmas trees or not buy presents for your children or not eat cookies. That's, that's not one of my goals. It's not to be a Christmas Scrooge. But it is to do this, to refocus, to refocus your minds on Christ and what his coming means for the world. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son. We're going to get a lot of gifts this year, but there is no gift like the gift of your son. Father, we teach our kids that if they're good throughout the year, good enough, they will earn presence at the end of the year. And I am just so grateful that that is not what you do with us. You have given the gift of your son to those whose righteousness is as filthy as rags. We are so unworthy and we sit here and rejoice of your coming that you, Jesus Christ, are the gift of Christmas. We praise you and rejoice in your name. Amen.